Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode of the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast, I feature Lava Thomas, an American artist and arts advocate who tackles issues of race, gender, and representation through a multidisciplinary practice that spans drawing, painting, and site-specific installations. She draws from her family's southern roots, intersectional feminism, and current and historical socio-political events. Lava's practice amplifies visibility, resilience, and empowerment in the face of erasure, trauma, and oppression. She is a recipient of the 2020 San Francisco Artadia Award, the Joan Mitchell Grant for Painters and Sculptures, and the Lucas Artist Fellowship in Visual Arts. She was recently awarded the commission to create a sculpture to honor Dr. Maya Angelou for the San Francisco Main Library. Lava has participated in various residencies and her work has been exhibited nationally, including the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco, to mention a few. Her work is held in several permanent collections of the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, D.C., the United States Consulate General in Johannesburg, South Africa, the Studio Museum in Harlem, to name a few. Please read her complete bio and links to additional accomplishments on the Cerebral Women website. It gives me pleasure to feature Lava Thomas on the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Enjoy. Lava, I really appreciate you spending time with me today. I am delighted to feature you on my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Welcome. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So let's dive in. All right. When did you discover your artistic passion? I was a creative bookish kid and I loved to draw and I had a good facility for it. So um, while I didn't exactly know what an artist was, I was always creative, always drawing, either drawing or playing the piano or reading. Did you lean towards music at all early on? I loved music. I took piano lessons for Oh, eight years. But I knew that I wasn't going to become a musician, but I do. I still play the piano. That's great. Are there any particular artists that influenced you early on? Um, yes. Um, when I was growing up as a child, my grandmother had a beauty shop and she subscribed to Highlights Magazine and Highlights Magazine for Children sometimes would have an art section. And I remember being a young girl, I was probably five or six and looking through Highlights Magazine and there was an article on uh, Las Meninas by Velasquez. 
And it was the first time that I saw a reproduction of a painting with a lot of young girls in it. And I was just enthralled. Another thing was that growing up in Los Angeles, my family's um, life insurance was through Golden State, Golden State Mutual Life Insurance Company, which was a Black-owned insurance company that had a calendar every year that was illustrated by Charles White. And I mm. remember um, being really excited when the calendar would arrive and pouring through the illustrations, which were really beautiful drawings of African-American people. And since drawing was something that I love to do, I just remember those images having a big impact on me. Uh, when I was um, in college, I studied fine art at both UCLA and CCAC when it was CCAC. And when I was an undergrad at CCAC, an undergrad at UCLA, excuse me, I interned at the Getty in the conservation lab. And it was a program that exposed students to uh, the field of con conservation, primarily for uh, minority students. And it was geared toward um, students who were fine art majors. And I really enjoyed the work. I loved it and was seriously considering becoming a conservator because there weren't very many um, Black women in the field of conservation. But during the time that I was interning that summer, Carrie Mae Weems had an exhibition um, in the Getty Villa. It was from here, I saw what happened and I cried, which was um, photographs picturing slaves, which Carrie Mae Weems mined from various archives. And that series contends with the complicated history of photography and, it, and its role in substantiating notions of racial hierarchy through the 19th and 20th centuries. And I was so taken by that work. That work was so incredibly powerful that over the course of that summer, I decided that I wanted to create work that aspired to that level of power and decided that I wouldn't go into conservation, but that I would continue uh, my education as an artist. And on that note, let's segue into you describing to us your practice how that Carrie May influence has carried over into your work? My practice is multidisciplinary. Um, the bulk of my work or the backbone of my work is drawing, but I also do photography, some painting, large-scale installations. Um, my practice is uh, deeply engaged with social justice, racial justice, um, Several projects really illustrate that idea, uh, Requiem for Charleston, which is a memorial to the nine men and women who were murdered at the AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. Um, Mugshot Portraits, Women of the Montgomery Bus Boycott, which um, highlights the activism of the Black women who initiated and organized the boycott, which was the pivotal event that launched Martin Luther King's leadership of the civil rights movement. Do you recall passions that you feel 
um, working on those two exhibitions? Yes. I'm, I'm a passionate person. Well, let's put it this way. I feel deeply. Um, I think deeply. I feel deeply. And I respond to events or respond to stories or histories in my work. And when the Charleston massacre happened, I like so many um, people around the country and black people in particular, I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. And coming from a family on my uh, maternal side, from the South, who were church going, it felt very personal to me. And it also felt historically like the 1963 bombings, even though this was before my time, but it reminded me historically of the four girls who were killed during the bombing in 1963, the church bombing. So the way that I process those events, those very traumatic and painful events is through my trap, through my practice. So I created Requiem for Charleston in response to that. So I wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily say, I wouldn't call it passion, but just this ability to feel very deeply about something and the need to transform that either grief or anger or outrage into an object that can provide healing is, is something that I try to do in my work. What do you enjoy most about being a visual artist? Since I've always loved to draw and I've always been creative, one of the things that I really am grateful for and love is the fact that I can do the thing that I discovered that I could do well professionally as an adult. I love being engaged with ideas. I love uh, researching um, a project. I love the community. I love being in conversation with other artists. Um, and I absolutely love seeing other people's work. So being in the presence of paintings, photography, um, learning, there's always, there's always something to discover. The act of creating is so uh, vital. <laughs> um, yeah, those are, those are just some of the things that I love about being an artist. And, and I meet so many incredible people and have wonderful conversations like this one. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Your work reflects what you've said today. They're strong pieces, but they, there's a message there and you can, you can decide, I don't know, there's something about them, you actually feel them. And has your practice changed much over the last few years? I don't know that so much that my practice has changed. What I, what I will say that has changed is my visibility. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a very good thing. I mean, what, what are you favoring right now? I mean, what, what, given this current situation, what do you feel like creating? You know, it's been interesting because I usually need a little bit of time and space to process something before I actually start um, making work about it. 
And these past few years have been so difficult on so many levels, right? The Trump presidency has taken an incredible uh, toll. Um, the rise of white supremacy is, is frightening and we need to respond to that in a, I believe, a, a, a disciplined and powerful way because it's extremely dangerous. I haven't started working, making work about that yet because I'm still very close to it. I'm using my creativity now as an escape from that. So, yes. <laughs> so the work is, yes. Yeah, so I'm, um, I'm being creative in ways that are more experimental that may not show up in work that actually gets exhibited, but is very much um, a part of what I need to do for my own self-care right now. Although I did start a series of portraits, uh, pandemic portraits of anonymous uh, black and brown masked women. And the scale is smaller than I usually work because now with the pandemic, I'm not in my professional studio very much. I have a 12-year-old son who's um, doing remote learning, so I'm home. And my space at home is much smaller. So I'm finding that I, I need to work smaller than I'm accustomed to. Well, most of us have uh, crowded walls, so we accept smaller work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so much of the work is so large. So how would you define Black art? It is such a complicated question it's oh gosh that's so complicated <laughs> because you know one can say black art is art that's made by a black person a person from the african diaspora and that's one way to define it and that way it can can look like anything it can be representational it can be realism it can be um, abstraction. And so that's one way to define it. What's been interesting since the art world has begun to pay attention to Black art and representations of Black people, I've seen um, a lot of representations of, of Black people who, have, who haven't been created by a Black artist. <laughs> right, right. So do I consider that Black art? Not necessarily. I think Black art needs to be made by a Black artist. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that the art world is in catch-up mode, discovering Black talent that's really always been there? Yes. We've always been here. And Black artists, um, I know I've always looked to other Black artists um, for mentorship, for inspiration, for conversations, um, and a lot of those, a lot of those artists, wonderful, and especially um, Black women, haven't received their due, and they've been working for decades upon decades upon decades, and now the art world is, quote, discovering them, <laughs> being, quote, discovered, but they've been there, they've always been there, we've always been here. It's just that for so long, we've been ignored by the mainstream art world. I, I, I have the impression that figurative Black art has become more popular than abstraction. What would you attribute that to? 
Um, I think there's still, a, there's very much a need for us to see ourselves. And there's very much a need for us to see ourselves on our own terms and not represented by other people and not represented by people who don't have our best interests at heart. So we're telling our own stories. We're telling our own stories through uh, representational works. And I think there's a real hunger for, for that and for Black people to have that and to look to that and to acquire that for themselves. Although I think a lot of the work is not in the collections of Black people, unfortunately. I'm excited to see a lot of Black artists doing really well in this time. I have a question about statues. Okay. <laughs> Would you say that statues of men are falling out of flavor? I think that now we understand the some of the history of statues of men and because it's usually statues of white men and they're usually statues that celebrate white supremacy and conquest in some way. Um, when you think about the Confederate monuments, for example, they're all statues of white men in the service of really intimidation and conquest and colonialism and all these kind of horrific things. So falling out of flavor or favor, <laughs> flavor, Bo favor. Both. both, flavor, favor. <laughs> um, yes, I think because we understand the history behind why they were created to establish this mythology that's really rooted in white supremacy. So in, in your work and your drawings of civil rights activists and the like, when you're creating, do you think about who your audience is? You know, when I'm creating, I um, I don't really think about my audience very much, except to say that I assume an audience that is like me. Toni Morrison had a wonderful quote, and I can't I I can't quote it verbatim, so I'll have to paraphrase. And um, she said something about writing the books that she wanted to read, essentially because those books didn't exist. So I'm creating the work that I want to see because that work doesn't exist. And I assume that if it's something that I want I need to make and something that I need to see, that there is an audience that needs to see it too. Your work also educates. Yes, yes. There is usually an educational component. Yes. Right. And do you, do you think your under, your audience understands that? I mean, does it make them think? Yes, I think that my audience understands it because, um, in addition to an exhibition, there's usually a catalog. There's always a series of artist talks um, and interviews. So, for example, the mugshot series. I'm speaking to the history of Black women's activism that really still 65 years later mm -hmm. that isn't part of the popular narrative about around the Montgomery bus boycott or even around the civil rights movement um, at large because it focuses still around the work of Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, and rightfully so, Rosa Parks, but it doesn't tell the whole story about 
the women who actually initiated and organized the boycott. So I'm with that project, I was really hoping to, and am still hoping to expand that history, to include the stories of the women who were responsible for that event. Um, so the audience begins to understand it the more they engage with the work or the project. With that, is there a common thread or a common theme throughout your work? Throughout yes. Your practice? I would say the like the overarching uh, goal of my work is to amplify ideas around um, our empowerment, our resilience, our ability for healing in the face of oppression and in the face of trauma. Like I'm interested in ideas that really speak to our agency as Black people and as Black women in particular. What do you feel is the purpose of art? Oh, you know, there are as many purposes for art as there are our individual artist intentions. <laughs> interesting. I, like I have that. a specific purpose. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have a purpose for my own work, but that purpose is not going to be the same for someone else. So I, there isn't a, I don't believe that there's a singular purpose of art. So what do you feel your role is as an artist? This is our last question. My role is to um, amplify and educate. That was quick. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've already answered some you of have, that. You have, you have, you yeah, have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this has been a great interview. I really um, appreciate your time. Um, is there anything you'd like to add? Um, no. <laughs> except that during this time, I will say that art has been a real uh, lifesaver and being creative has been um, a real lifesaver. And I'm looking forward to a time when we can all um, see art in person and uh, see each other again. I'm looking forward to art fairs and museum openings. And yes. Walkthroughs, yeah, we, I think we've paid our price long enough. But this has been a great interview. Uh, thank you once again. And thank you so much, Phyllis, for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.